Welcome everybody to My Life is a Montage. Uh, in this show, we're going to take a look at music and where it fits in our lives. I'm Keith Campbell. I'm joined here by Ian Shakir. Ian, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Keith. Thanks for uh, thanks for asking. It's a wonderful cold Friday night, so that's uh, always fun to talk about music, especially the kind of music we're going to talk about tonight. <laughs> so, what have you picked for the, for this portion of your montage? Uh, I think. Best place to start for this was a song that most people actually know from a montage, uh, which would be The Smiths' Please, Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want. Uh, even though the version that people know is most likely uh, the Dream Academy instrumental version from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right. uh, I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful place to start in terms of kind of those stories that you tell and those moments where music really impacts your life and, and becomes bigger than just the song itself. So in your montage, is this a wistful mo- uh, part of the montage? Is this a kind of uh, sad motivation or is this a uh, pouring driving rain uh, part of the montage? Uh, there's bits of most of it, but I think one of the, the bits of all of it, I would say, but I think the funniest thing about it is in much the way that if you've seen the montage of Ferris Bueller's day off at Chicago's uh, museum of modern art, I believe it's the museum of modern art. uh, And Cameron Ferris's best friend is uh, seen staring off into uh, staring off into a painting and kind of trying to find himself in a strange way, how this song came into my life and the, the bit of my life's montage is that it became a transformative point in my life where I found something about myself that I didn't know. Very cool. And before we get into that story, let's back up and find out where it landed in the Smiths uh, catalog and where, where they were in their lives. So this came out August 20th, 1984, actually a B-side, given its prominence, it's you know, we were both talking in, in pre that this was kind of a surprise. Uh, it's the B-side to William, It Was Really Nothing. Uh, it appeared later on Hatful of Hollow, which was kind of, you know, from from my perspective, the Pisces Iscariot to uh, to the Smiths. Uh, you know, both the single and the album coming out on Rough Trade. It was written in, according to Johnny Marr, a three-day period where he wrote the, the aforementioned William, It Was Really Nothing. And also, How Soon Is Now? Uh, in the interview they did with John Doran for the noisy British Masters series, he mentions how you know he'd gotten those two songs out and thought, well, we're going to need a third for the 12-inch. So I've got the fast one, I've got the slow, sad one, and now we're going to mess around and do the really groovy one. And that's how How Soon Is Now came, came about. Which is amazing because How Soon Is Now is the one that has really kind of uh, stood beyond, you know, oh, yeah. Please, Please, Please has, has its own kind of history and following, but it, it has a very specific feel to it. Whereas How Soon Is Now is just, is elevated, was one of the songs that elevated the Smiths beyond, uh, beyond niche or beyond oh, yeah. uh, just the UK band. Yeah. If I, if I were to ask somebody to name a Smith song, it's probably that maybe this charming man. And then maybe um, there is a light probably. And I think uh, girlfriend in a coma was also uh, kind of in there as well. Uh, As a side note to this, uh, I first heard of the Smiths uh, listening to Rodney Bingenheimer and Rodney on the rock in Los Angeles. I grew up in Southern California um, and as we talk about this, it, it's a point in my life where I was actually listening to a lot of heavy metal, okay. uh, very much into rat 
and Motley Crue and mm. early Guns N' Roses and things. So the fact that we're talking about a Smith song and how it is that kind of sad maudlin uh, Morrissey style is is really kind of extra interesting and special for me. Well, it's it's maudlin, but as with a lot of stuff that Morrissey's written, there's a lot of menace to it. I mean, Morrissey himself has said, you know, when they played this this track for Rough Trade, they kept asking, where's the rest of the song? And Morrissey's thought was, well, this is a very brief punch in the face. Um, mm-hmm. You know, get my word in, get getting out. And, you know, I think if you look back on his catalog, there's a little bit of a more, not so much a crying hysterical mess, but more of a wounded animal quality to, mm-hmm. to their songs. And that's, you know, the lyrics are very much you know, don't mess any further, you know, let me move on. Yeah. And I think that, I think that it's one of those things that can be taken in, in different ways, depending on where you are in your, where you are yeah. in your own life or where you are when you're listening to it, as we'll see where you are age wise. Mm. Uh, Cause I've had, I've, I've had this discussion with, uh, I've had this discussion with relatives of mine, cousins of mine who are into very similar music who were in college when this came out and their take on their take on the song is significantly different from where mine is. Okay. Yeah. In, in other interviews, uh, Johnny Morris mentioned um, the song called the answer to everything by Del. This is a really interesting song. We'll put a little snippet of it in. And he says, that, you know, it's a parent song that his parents used to play all the time. It kind of struck a chord in him. And, you know, as he was kind of turning over stuff in his brain, that's the thing that really kicked Please, Please, Please into the, uh, into his uh, kind of, as he calls it, spookiness and sense of yearning. It's interesting. I found it interesting, too, that they went with, uh, that he brought in a mandolin uh, yeah. toward the end, uh, that has that kind of, I think, in today's world, we would think of a bit more bluegrassy, uh, but where where it plays into that is this kind of uh, it does have this kind of echoey this echoey uh, echoey sadness to it that I think really it, it doesn't directly follow the Del Shannon song, but you can hear the you can hear the influence there. That's such a good pr- producer. Uh, Mara said that John Porter, the producer of the single, said that the mandolin was his suggestion. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful little addition because it allows that it's funny. We talk about the uh, rough trade saying, where's the rest of the song, but the mandolin is the rest of the song. Mm. The mandolin brings it home and the mandolin really brings it to that kind of, uh, it gives you a moment to kind of Morsi's giving you that punch in the face and the mandolin is gives you that melody and the kind of echo to it that allows you to kind of uh, reflect on what you're, what you're feeling when you, when you listen to the song for the first time or for the hundredth time. Yeah. Cause I mean, other, the, what, that's exactly what sets it apart. Cause you know, the, the base of the track has everything that you've kind of come to expect from that you will come to expect from the Smiths as you listen through the, the career. You know, it's got the chiming acoustic guitars saying the bedrock. It's got, um, it's got Johnny Mars kind of interesting little melodic lines all through it. And, you know, then that, yeah, as you said, it's that amplification at the end with the mandolin. Um, the interesting thing. So going back to that, um, 
you know, not to give John Dorn all the credit in the world, but going back to that British Masters interview, uh, one of the things that Johnny Marr pointed out is, and I, I find his sense of timeline interesting because he considers himself to be, he says, you know, his whole generation is more post post punk. So his thought, you know, and, you know, that's a, that's a really rapid turnaround. If you think of like punk as 70, you know, nebulously between 75 and 77, depending on if you want to count the New York dollars or the Ramones is the start of it um, mm-hmm. to like 80. And then you've got maybe like, two years then before the, the Smiths get going. But, you know, that digression aside, one of the things that Mars said was that the important thing for his generation of, of bands was kind of removing all the, the rockism from what they were doing. So, you know, almost trying to, you know, obliterate, you know, distorted guitar and all that. And mm-hmm. kind of the influences that you're left with are like funk bands, well, one of the things that I've always found interesting, and I'm glad you brought that quote up from him or that that bit up from him, is because the other the other thread that doesn't that they don't often talk about, but is clearly an influence in terms of their peers, is the Smiths were coming up in this post post punk world, but they were also coming up at the same time as the New Romantics, mm-hmm. uh, it, and so the, you can always hear a little bit of there's there is that rock deconstruct you know, a little bit of a rock deconstruction to what they do, but with what Mar does melodically uh, and what their mm. music generally does, both both the faster stuff and the and the slower stuff, does have if you really li- you know if you really listen to that kind of mid Smiths catalog, it you can hear that there's uh, the jam is the jam is ha- the jam has an effect there or mm-hmm. early or a spandau ballet, an early spandau ballet or an early ABC. Uh, and they, they do take bits and pieces from that in yeah. terms of adding that melody. I mean, cause Morrissey, Morrissey's lyrics have always just been poetry set to music. Yeah. And so when we do that and then you hear the kind of convergence of all these three, uh, of, of, the two, you know, the new romantics, the post-punk, and then the new, the, the straight new wave, there was a lot for them to kind of play into and play around with when, when the Smiths came up. And I think, I think it, especially in Morrissey's case, there's a bit of a kind of sour grapes of not being included in the, the punk movement because, you know, as you know, you may know, or other people may not, Morrissey auditioned for the band that was going to become the clash in 75. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing was, yeah, we don't think a Manchester lad's going to cut it in this London band. You need to go back up North. <laughs> and he, you can hear that kind of bit. You can hear that bitterness in a lot in, in a lot of his uh, lyrics about mm. where he's from. Yeah. You know, you can almost hear that, uh, that kind of, uh, I have always found, I've always thought that his vocal affect when he's speaking uh, the that kind of Thurston Howell the third talk the <laughs> language that he has it's not a he doesn't he doesn't speak with a Mancunian accent at all right he, right he is intentionally posh in what he's saying and so it's it's always been interesting to me that there's you know they are Manchester but <laughs> I think if you ask I think if you ask Morrissey it's uh, yeah it's not by his choosing yeah. So uh, as we've mentioned, the song has had a life beyond even the Smiths. You know, as as you said at the very top, it was in the um, 
the Ferris Bueller Museum montage. It was on. It's been on the Pretty in Pink soundtrack, which is part of what we'll get to when we get to your story. Uh, it's also been on se- several other uh, movie soundtracks, like Five Hundred Days of Summer. Weirdly enough, uh, the film Sky High. Um, and in it's a great Qu- version in that. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a great version in that in that movie. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is the bad guy. Spoiler alert! But oh, okay. Uh, if you if you talk to if you talk to late millennials and early Gen Zers, Sky High is a it, Sky High ah. is a seminal moment in superhero See, movies. That's that's the problem. I'm a millennial of a certain age. We'll say. <laughs> <clears throat> The song was also in 2011 featured in the annual John Lewis Christmas advert, uh, the piano-based cover by a band uh, called Slow Moving Millie. Uh, take a guess which of Marcy or Mar was the most passive-aggressive about that version. <laughs> I'm going to guess Mar. <laughs> You're correct. Marcy said he was very happy with the result, and Johnny Mar's quote was... Uh, Writing, please, please, please let me get what I want one Friday in 84 is one of the best memories of my life. This hat has not sullied that memory one bit. <laughs> the faintest praise that, you could possibly give it. <laughs> that is outstanding. And it's, uh, you can hear Johnny Marr saying it, too, yeah. especially as he's gotten older. Yeah. And the thing is, the, the ad's solid. It's a, it's, you know, the, mm-hmm. it's a nice, really good, um, you know, quaintish like piano based version of the song it's shot it's a whole bunch of kids um interspersed mm-hmm. like counting down the days like looking up at the clock like is it christmas yet is it christmas yet and you know it's it's really solid <laughs> but <laughs> but it's still a christmas ad for a department store yeah and I think it's funny because you talk about songs like this and, and that have been covered multiple times. And I think to uh, almost every act that's had a, a song that's been covered multiple times will always have the one that they're okay with yeah. and the one that they wish really didn't happen. I was and not so, able to get their sense of what they thought of either the Deftones or the Hootie and the Blowfish versions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So quick aside here, you made me listen to the Hootie and the Blowfish I version. Did. <laughs> Uh, and, and as you said, you are a millennial of a certain age. I am, I am squarely Gen X, and so Hootie is very love hate for me. Uh, okay, as in, I got you. I, and it, as in, I love to hate them. <laughs> and so, hearing a halfway decent cover of the song from Hootie and the Blowfish was both surprisingly enjoyable and painful to my soul. <laughs> well, the thing is that. You know, as as pilloried as Darius Rucker's voice was during the time, um, Duke can sing. Yeah, it's a very pure voice, and yeah. he will always. Yeah, I mean, it's Hootie and the Blowfish. There will always be a certain amount of uh, jokery about them, but you know, let's be real; they're not. They will never be uh, as bad as. Uh, the life is the highway guy or, uh, you know, Nick or Nickelback or Creed or Hootie and the Blowfish were a fine American band in the nineties. Yeah. They, they, they fit in that good tradition of MOR artists going back to like the seventies. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they are. They're the Chuck Mangione of (laughs) nineties, of nineties rock bands. No, the recording industry has given us a lot worse artists that have gotten five or so like 
number one singles. Mm-hmm. Good for them. They, yep. they, they did a good version of this song. I'm not going to begrudge it. No. And Hootie is not in my life's montage, so it's good that we get them out of the way now. Fair enough. So, 1984 when this came out. Um, what other albums came out? Well, Purple Rain came out. Uh, 84 is 84 is uh, one of those seminal years. 83, 84 both yeah. are seminal years in, in, in music, both uh, in the U.S. and worldwide. Mm. Uh, yeah, you had Purple Rain. Uh, you had uh, Van Halen 1984. You yeah. had early. Uh, you had early Metallica come out. So on the on the metal side, you had some really seminal uh, some seminal albums come out. You had some of the greatest. Uh, you had some of the greatest. You know, kind of new wave and post new wave stuff coming out. Uh, Synchronicity came out uh, late '83, early '84. Okay. Um, Madonna's uh, Like a Virgin came out late night late '84. Uh, so you had, I mean, there's a lot that happened there. Born in the USA uh, came out. Any- that was the first yep. like mass produced CD that hit the market, which was a huge oh, shift God, in the music industry. That was not my first CD I ever bought, but we'll, we'll talk about that another time. Um, also uh, and- kind of a bit of a bummer of a year. That was the year that, um, the Reagan revolution continued on. Um, the conservatives in Canada, uh, elected a huge majority. Um, the UK signed their agreement to return Hong Kong, which didn't happen until 97, but it was signed then. And Chrysler released the first minivan. Oh, yeah. God, I'd forgotten about that. Well, <laughs> and, and related to Reagan getting reelected, was all, this was also prime Margaret Thatcher time, too. Yeah, oh, of course. Uh, which, which uh, you know, in the, in the context of, what, of who we're talking about is very much uh relevant to that this is also yeah. uh this was also the year that uh, if we want to go british this is also the year that welcome to the pleasure dome came out by frankie by bands like frankie goes to hollywood mm. uh end of the year was when songs from the big chair came out by tears for fears uh so you had a lot of real Eng- english heft out there mm. uh duran duran were in between their first two albums so it right there's a lot yeah there's a lot going on there from a uh from a new music and new direction kind of uh point of view mm. so then with the historical context let's put it into your life T- tell us about <laughs> the song how it came to your life what it brings back in you when you hear it I uh, so to set the scene, I did not know the song in 1984 when it came out. Uh, I was very much I was 11 when it came out, and so I had heard of the of the albums that came out around that time. Uh, Construction time again by Depeche Mode came out at that time, and uh, people that was when People Are People broke through in the U.S. So I had heard of Depeche Mode. Uh, but most of the music that I listened to was top, you know, pop top 40, heavy metal, as I mentioned. Um, and then what was on MTV that week? And the Smiths were not on MTV. Hmm. Uh, so, so fast forward a couple of years to 1986. I was 13, uh, hmm. actually right about now in February, I turned 13. I was in eighth grade. I was a nerdy kid who was still trying to feel out his way in the world. Mm. Didn't know who he was going to be. Didn't know what I was going to be. And I got invited to Shannon Dersham's eighth grade birthday party. It was the first, it was the first boy girl party I ever went to where it was like 
boy girl party. Right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, there was a little spin the bottle. There was all that stuff. Well, as that went along, one of the things that got one of the records that got brought out uh, was the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. I had not seen Pretty in Pink yet. It had only been out for about a month. Hmm. Uh, but Shannon, Shannon was extra cool and had stuff like that. <laughs> and so we, we played the soundtrack all the way through, actually, because there were so, if you know that soundtrack, there's the, uh, if you, uh, if you leave by OMD, there's Shell yeah. Shock by, by New Order. There's, it's a party uh, record in 86. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Echo and the Bunnymen. And it ends with Please, Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want by the Smiths. And I was blown away by that song. For two reasons. One, Shannon's older sister, who was 22, was very sweet to me. And, and was, oh, Siri, I apologize for Siri jumping in. Uh, <laughs> she was very sweet to me and asked me to dance to the song. And so we slow danced to Morrissey, which is weird in itself. <laughs> and she had, and, and, uh, and, it was the slow, it was the slow and sad one. So it's good yeah, for slow and sad. Yeah. It would have been strange yeah. if it had been how soon as now. That's true. That's true. It, the the what I remember about it is I remember hearing I remember hearing the strum of the guitar as we kind of rock back and forth as you yeah. do when you're that age. And I remember hearing Morrissey saying, It's good times for a change. And I thought yeah. to myself that it was like it was this moment where I heard someone speak to me for the first time through music. Mm. Um, as a personal note, and this is how these montage type songs end yeah, yeah. up. My parents had just gotten divorced, uh, mm. less than a year earlier. Uh, and so, you know, as a young kid trying to find his way in the world, I didn't know who I was trying to figure out who I was. Right. And as I'm standing there rocking back and forth in a horrible flat top with <laughs> bad contacts and, you know, uh, probably wearing a plaid oh, they, they would have been kind. hard and glass at that point, right? They were very much of the Jan Brady ilk, yes. Uh, and, and, you know, just standing there with with a beautiful woman with her arms on my shoulder and a song, like, passing through me, it was the moment where I decided that this was a kind of music that actually spoke to me. And this was a kind of music that could actually help me to see who I wanted to be. And so almost immediately I turned off of, uh, the metal and started trying to find bands like the Smiths. And I listened to, I went out and bought the pretty and pink soundtrack and I listened to that and bring on the dancing horses by, uh, echo and the bunny man, just on a loop for months afterward. And it was uh, a key moment in me really becoming someone who cared about lyrics, who okay, cared yeah. about musicianship, and who cared about feeling more than uh, as something more than just ah! right. Looking to use music as, as an introspective method rather than as a um, as something to just bash through whatever you were feeling at the yeah. time. Yeah, I- exactly, exactly. So let's take a quick break and we'll be back with more My Life is a Montage. And 
are back. So before we went into break, you were mentioning that this was kind of the song that brought you to looking at lyrics. What other sort of artists, you know, Smith, Seco, you know, you continue on. What, what were the ones that kind of really like grabbed you and spoke to you? Um, then maybe we can dig back. We can circle back and dig into some of the, you know, the lyrics here that, you know, besides the good times for change that, that <laughs> grabbed you. Yes. I really, really fell in love with the cure almost okay. immediately afterward. Those are usually, um, yeah, they are. And so strangely enough, as life is a montage, uh, a <laughs> couple of months, a <laughs> couple of months later, I happened to be at my oldest cousin's wedding okay. in San Diego. And they, this, these were the cousins who were all in college. And so I started having a discussion about music. And I mentioned that I had just discovered the Smiths. I had just discovered Morrissey. And so they made me a mixtape. Uh, yeah, because they, yeah, they, uh, they were both college DJs. And so they were very, very much into that. So they made me a mixtape. Uh, and I fell in love with, oddly enough, I fell in love with uh, not Boys Don't Cry, but actually uh, Killing an Arab. Okay. Well, and while the title is, you know, a little problematic these days, um, if you really listen to the song and listen to the storytelling of it, oh yeah, it's actually it's actually a well, wonderful. It's wonderful it's based song. on the stranger. Yeah, yeah, so, and it's just wonderful. The funny thing is, so as we've talked previously, I used to work at a um, a mall record store, an FYE, and you know I worked there just before and for a couple of years after 2001. So in October, November of 2001, there started appearing on The Cure's uh, Staring at the Sea, the singles, a label that said, the song Killing an Arab is about Albert Camus' The Stranger. It is not about actually killing an Arab person. <laughs> yeah, I remember, when that, I remember when that version of the CD, when, the, when that CD came out. And uh, and the and the label and, and yeah, uh, this is a discussion for another day. But I actually interviewed Robert Smith about a, a year before that, that okay. compilation came out. So <laughs> we we I, and I talked to him about it. Um, but there was that there were you know those were kind of the two cornerstones of what I listened right. to in terms of uh, in terms of lyricism. But I also started really getting into a lot of female singer songwriters. Okay. So. Uh, a lot of Suzanne Vega and, okay. and, you know, Melissa Etheridge and getting into uh, I, this, they're kind of off the path here, but then I started getting into a little bit more Cocteau twins and Kim, D, you know, early stuff that Kim Deal was doing with Pixies and then yeah. Sonic Youth. And, and so it went melodically, I went all over the place. Right. But lyrically, it was always it was always if you could put together, if you could turn a phrase, if you could speak to me, if you could say something that was interesting, I was going to listen. You were looking for more poets. Yeah. 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 Because I was so bad at it. <laughs> yeah, it it's true. I, I, uh, I'm a I, I found one of my old notebooks a few years yeah. back and cringed my way through it. I, I understand exactly the impulse you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Right. Writing has been, you know, the better part of my entire adult career. Mm -hmm. And yet 
(laughs) (laughs) He asked me to write a song. It just ain't going to happen. I think it's one of the reasons why also at the same time, I really got in, I really got into hip hop, but I got Mm. into hip hop because of, uh, lyrical flow. So I was much more, I was much more a Rakim guy than I Mm -hmm. was, uh, into kind of, even before the gangsta stuff came out later on in the decade, right. I would I would definitely listen to that kind of you know early early Q Tip early you know uh, Rakim like I said Boogie Down Productions that kind of stuff where they were really trying to tell a story. Right. You mentioned having that discussion with your with your older co- with your co- cousins and their older friends um, mm-hmm. when it came to your peers. I remember, you know, myself, you know, as a, as a fellow person that was attracted to the lyrics of a song and kind of, you know, tuning in with that, getting a couple of strange looks every now and again <laughs> when I wasn't all like 100% about what, whatever was behind the, whatever music was behind the lyrics. Um, did, did that run similar for you or did you find yes. some, some kin there? Yeah. So, you know, being a freshman in high school, you're, uh, your self-esteem isn't always at the best and you're mm-hmm. trying to fit in and you're trying to, again, find your way in the world. And there was, uh, there were very few people who kind of listened to the same kind of stuff I did in the same way that I did. Right. It was a, it was a rare, a rare thing. Uh, so everyone loved you too. And you know, the unforgettable fire and then Joshua tree came out the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was listening to, the story that Bono was trying to tell or listening to, you know, and they were just, Hey man, this is cool. Okay. Well, it's cool. But what else is there? But there were a couple and this is, uh, so there was a girl I had a huge crush on and I asked her out and she never, she never went on a date with me. She now, uh, according to the ghoul is apparently a, museum curator like world-renowned museum curator who lives in like Prague or something like that okay yeah so yeah so she probably made the good choice in not dating me (laughs) um but she actually gave me uh she started giving me more deeper you know deeper bands from that time uh so starting to get into early cocktail you know cocktail twins and um starting and, and even going back to that kind of that punk post punk era and getting into Bowie that I hadn't listened to, like the mm. Slim Duke era, the Slim okay. Duke, the, or the Thin, Thin White Duke, uh, yeah. Duke era. Yeah. You know, where it was, these guys know how to tell a story. These guys know how to speak to you. These mm. guys know. And, and so it was really, uh, it was really fun to kind of be that, but kind of outwardly, I was. Oh yeah, you know I love whatever is playing. You know <laughs> that new that new Cinderella album is awesome, man. Or bitching. Funnily enough, I saw them in concert. One of those like outdoor amphitheaters, mm-hmm. like eighteen years ago. So well, well past their sell by date. <laughs> and they put on a hell of a show. I was I, really impressed with them. They, uh, you know, and a lot of those hair bands from that mid eighties era, you know, they know how to, yeah, they know how to play a show. Yeah. Uh, but they, you know, this was that, I don't know. I'm sounding pretentious a little bit about this, Mm. but I think it was more, it became more about a way for me to, I couldn't tell my story. So I listened to people who could tell stories to me. Okay. I can see that. Um, 
And along that, I also really got into uh, I really got into Depeche Mode at the same time, but it was a different love. There was as much the music as it was anything. Mm-hmm. I just loved their feel and their attitude about it. Right. So I went from if we want to talk concerts, I went from the last show I saw before I entered high school was Kiss and Twisted Sister, and the first show I saw after I started high school was I was at the Music for the Masses show at the Rose Bowl. Okay. So, you know, it was definitely a a sea change in terms of, like, right, right. you know, the 13-year-old Ian and 14-year-old Ian. And it, it literally started that night with hmm. that Smith song in Slow Dancing with uh, Slow Dancing with Shannon Dersham's older sister. Very cool. Um, so if you were to make a mixtape with... This is the first track. Give me like the next four. You may have to cut out some dead air as I think about this. <laughs> um, as I think about it, I think, <laughs> and you'll see that I, you know, I do kind of go all over the place. Um, I think, the original version of Tom's Diner okay. would be on here. Not the not the Arlo dance Godfrey mix, one. but yeah. 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 Um and then oddly enough, uh what I am from Edie Burkell and New Bohemians. Because it okay. is of that time. Yeah. And is uh there's a feel to it and there's a there's a um there's an aura about it that was very much of its time. Yeah. So, so Tom's for the storytelling, you know, new Bohemians for the feel and the poetry. Mm-hmm. And then, and this is where I'll go a little bit. This is where things would ramp up, you know, because mm. uh, to take the quote from John Cusack, a mixtape has <laughs> to have its ups and downs. Right. And ups right. And downs. And so uh, you would start to move into, uh, because it would have to segue, uh, I would probably start playing something like uh, the Great Commandment, um, okay. or something from you know something from one of those kind of uh, or Olamor from Erasure would be in that same Ooh. would be in that same kind of tone too, where it got more dancey, it got more poppy, but was still kind of you know uh, a little flowery, a little poetic, a little something that would be able to go along. Okay, so I think we've we've told the story of the song. We've told the story of the montage. We started yeah. off wistful, and now I'm kind of sensing it as an origin story over the shoulder. You know, this oh, is where it all definitely. picks up part of the montage very, at the very end. Very definitely. This, this, would be the, uh, this would be where, if you're looking at it in, a, in the context of a John Hughes movie, this, this would be the moment where... Uh, Ducky or someone looking like Ducky uh, is at their lowest. Mm. I actually, I think the better, the better analog would be uh, Mary Stuart Masterson in some kind of wonderful, Okay, uh, that kind of, that kind of person, the, someone who feels like an outsider uh, is at their lowest and is trying to figure out their, their way forward uh, and playing that song in the background while they're sitting in their room, you know, scribbling, scribbling uh, that, what is it? Writing, writing frightening verse to a bucktooth girl in Luxembourg or something like that. <laughs> uh, not to use another Smith's quote. 
but and from that the idea for how we're going to get to the third act and how we're going to see our way through mm. uh, the problems of the day. That's where this song would set that up. All right. Well, Ian, thank you for taking us through a tour of this, the first of our montages. Uh, in the meantime, everyone, let's hope your montages all play the sunlight. Thank you for listening to My Life as a Montage. I've been Keith Campbell, joined by Ian Shaker here. Our intro and interstitial music has been Funny Animals by Crowander. It was found on freemusicarchive.org and is being used under Creative Commons. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Let me get what I want this time.